Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and we'd like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta land. And we're also asking you to influence your local politicians with the message that we really need to change our energy policies and move to renewable energy sources to mitigate the effects of climate change. And each month, we love bringing you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, our friend, molecular pharmacologist, toxicologist and amateur astronomer, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, brings you his monthly sky guide with all the essential observational highlights for telescopers, astrophotographers, and naked eye observers. Each month, Ian also includes Ian's Tangent, where he takes us on a short journey of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we bring you an exclusive and in-depth interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, particle physicist, radio telescope engineer, data scientist, or space scientist. So right now, we're going to zoom over 14 time zones to the Harvard and Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to find out exactly how Dr. Daniel Palumbo used the Event Horizon Telescope to help produce that first amazing image of a supermassive black hole. You're going to love the way Daniel walks you through this. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Brendan. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. Daniel Palumbo from the Harvard and Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Daniel is an astrophysicist at the Black Hole Initiative at Harvard University, and he worked on those amazing black hole images using data from the planet-sized telescope, the EHT, the Event Horizon Telescope. And for his PhD, he focused his research on measuring the spin and magnetic fields around supermassive black holes. And He's involved in ongoing work on EHT data on the Galactic Center and Messier 87 star and is co-lead of several theory and modeling working groups within the Next Generation EHT Consortium. Now, Daniel was part of the imaging effort that stunned the world on April 10, 2019, when they released the first image of a black hole at the center of the M87 galaxy. And since then, we now also have an image of Sagittarius A star, Sag A star, the supermassive black hole at the center of our own galaxy, the Milky Way. Now, first of all, congratulations on many fields, Zed. Secondly, thanks for speaking with us today, Daniel. Thank you so much, Brendan. It's my pleasure to be here. Excellent. So, Before we talk about your research passions and imaging black holes with the EHT, would you like to tell us where you grew up, please, Daniel, and tell us how you first became interested in science and space? Yeah, so I grew up in Los Angeles, California, born and raised, and then moved down to the East Coast for college. But I've had an interest in science since really as long as I can remember. 
and specifically physics since middle school, I've always had trouble remembering things. And so I really enjoyed the fact that in physics, uh, if you could remember and, and internalize and really just write on your bones sort of core truths and laws, you could re-derive on the spot a great deal. And that was a, a very refreshing uh, approach to me. And, you know, I've since come around to be uh, have a more general and considered approach to the sciences. But at the time, it was a it, it made it feel more fundamental. And so I became very interested in physics and later uh, much more interested in astrophysics. And the rest is history. Excellent. OK, cool. So tell us a little about those school days and your earliest ambitions. And did they change much? I think like many people who are interested in physics, when they get to college, they imagine walking in the footsteps of big name theorists who we name equations and diagrams and such after and you know, want to do pencil and paper work for the rest of their lives. But for me, I very soon, and, and this was very critical to my experience at MIT, fell in love with lab work and experimental physics and observational work ultimately. And that was the big change for me. And suddenly I just really fell in love again with my work. There were some times when I was, I was quite disheartened with, with physics, and then it all changed almost overnight. Okay. You mentioned MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where you were awarded your BSc degree in physics, which also involved completing your research thesis. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But before we delve into some solid science, do you have any favorite recollections as a MIT undergraduate? And maybe you'd like to tell us about some of that. Was it fun? Was it hard work? Was it both? And perhaps you can also tell us how you were first drawn into black holes without becoming spaghettified. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, so I had a, a wonderful time at MIT. It was definitely both fun and hard work. That is, it's it's big pitch, and it's certainly not unique to MIT, but certainly MIT sells itself on having a great deal of both. And yeah, sort of as I was alluding to, it was the first time in my life I had any exposure to lab work. And it was also where I got research exposure that is very unlike what I do now, very unlike anything I'd done before, to particle physics research where I'm actually, you know, with my own hands, uh, assembling and soldering together detector hardware and electronics, and instilled in me a lifelong love of sort of tinkering with things. And there's a lot of support for that culture at MIT outside of classes. And a lot of my good friends were, were engineers. And there's just an attitude of, if you want to do something, just go do it. And there's, of course, this great blessing at MIT of actually having the resources to just go and do it. And so I've tried to carry that with me wherever possible in life of, if I want something to exist, I should just make it exist and ideally do it myself with my own hands and, and get some friends to do it as well. And that, I think that spirit sort of carries through into uh, the, the groups I found myself working with later in life. And it, it means a great deal to me. In terms of getting first drawn into black holes, you know, I, I mentioned I was doing a lot of particle physics research. Uh, that was a very good experience with the dark light collaboration as an undergraduate research project. But towards the end of my undergrad, I realized that I had done basically no astrophysics or astronomy research, despite always loving the sky as a kid, you know, also having some fun at some space science related summer camps in high school. 
And so I figured this would be my last chance before having to pick a grad school and a program and an advisor around some kind of physics research. I gosh well better do some astrophysics research before I get out of undergrad. And so I talked to my advisor, who's Rob Simcoe at MIT, wonderful guy. And he recommended the Event Horizon Telescope because he heard that both that they were on the cusp of something pretty exciting and they needed hands on deck, if that makes sense. And so I just cold emailed Shep Doleman, then director of the Event Horizon Telescope, uh, who was up the street at Harvard and said, hey, I am uh, you know, have laptop, will travel. I would love to do anything. I, I would be happy to be part of this project in any context because the Event Horizon Telescope sounds cool. And so he, uh, against all odds, found time to see me and I got involved in the project and I've been with them ever since. Fantastic. So you got in on the ground floor and yes, it looks like from what I've seen of it, the Event Horizon Telescope is very cool. Okay, look, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the Event Horizon Telescope, the EHT? It's not just one telescope, is it? No, no, indeed. It is an array of radio telescopes uh, across the Earth's surface, uh, which work together to form extraordinarily high-resolution images of uh, distant radio sources using a technique called very long baseline interferometry. And of course, the big name sources that we want to look at are supermassive black holes, primarily our galactic center, and uh, that in the heart of the M87 galaxy. And so really the the timing and and getting it on the ground floor, you you couldn't have put it better. When I interviewed, so when I, I visited the Black Hole Initiative, where I'm currently sitting, in 2017, to interview with Shep and, and Michael Johnson, who later became my advisor, I didn't realize it at the time, but everyone I, I bumped into in the hallways looked very sleepy. They looked very excited, but also stressed. I got to sit in for very briefly on what uh, was evidently a uh, sort of an impromptu control room. I had arrived in April during the observations that would become the first images of a supermassive black hole. And they found time to chat with me, uh, which which really uh, blew my mind. And so uh, that was that was very kind of them. And and I I it's the spirit that I I hope uh, sort of pervades science is always trying to extend the hand downward and upward whenever you can. But yeah, so it has been an incredible collaboration of hundreds of people across the world to be a part of uh, that produces images of supermassive black holes and other things too, but mostly them. Awesome, and we're going to hear a bit of detail about that a bit later, but let's go back a little bit now to your MIT bachelor's degree in physics, the thesis you did, Imaging Black Holes with Simulated Space Expansions to the Event Horizon Telescope. Now, in your 2018 thesis, you demonstrated the feasibility of adding space-based dishes to the EHT and how significant improvements can be made to EHT imagery by adding smaller dishes to the array. Now, that seems to have come to pass. Can you tell us how the EHT array has been developed further over the last five years since you wrote that thesis? Yeah, so this technique that we do in our business 
uses an array of telescopes to sample uh, something called Fourier uh, components of an image on the sky. One way to think about it is every pair of telescopes corresponds to hearing one key on a piano being played on a song that no one has ever heard before. And so our job in analyzing this data is to try and understand what this unheard song is being played on a piano that's missing half of its keys. And so it's always useful to expand the array because we're adding keys back to this broken piano. And so the point of my thesis was saying, you can very effectively add keys to this piano by putting dishes in space. And this wasn't terribly surprising, that usually the reason why things aren't put in space is not because it wouldn't be cool, it's because it wouldn't be cool enough to justify the expense. And thankfully, recently, very recently, I think space expansions to the EHT are becoming more likely because the science has become richer and richer as our theoretical understanding of our sources has improved. But at the moment, there are no currently operating space VLBI uh, dishes at our frequencies, or really at all, uh, now that Radio Astron, uh, which is a, a Russian mission which had a, a wonderful history, uh, is no longer functioning. So where we are now, since the 2017 observations, are in a situation where we've made significant improvements to the hardware at our existing telescopes, a few more telescopes have joined the array, and we're considering in this next generation Event Horizon Telescope project, uh, expansions to the array on the ground that will be transformative and incredibly important for studies of large-scale structure. So if you want to see the jet of nearly light-speed material being launched from the accretion disk near our sources like uh, Messi 87, the NGEHD is the array to do it, and that is an expansion on the ground. But if you want to get to really fine structure, it turns out that high-resolution images come from really long distances between your telescopes. It means your array is effectively larger. And so that's why space is so critical, because it just puts more distance between your telescopes. And so with a, a space expansion, we might have the resolution to study uh, much more interesting things near the black hole. And I'll, I'll probably uh, find some excuse to talk a great length about this later, but there's a structure called the photon ring, which is a very sharp ring of light we expect to be hidden in our images, corresponding to orbiting photons around the black hole, which we might be able to see very, very soon with a space-enabled EHT. Fantastic. And we'll hear a bit more about that later when we zoom in on the actual image. Oh, look, a supplementary question. Do you take data six months apart, so you're using the whole orbit of the Earth as the baseline for your VLBI? Uh, yeah, so that would be very clever if uh, if it weren't for the case that, uh, unfortunately, we need to be fully contemporaneous in order to form baselines. But the, the technique you describe is, of course, how, how parallactic measurements are done. They basically use the entire sort of 2AU separation of, of the Earth's uh, distance to, to the sun on, on each end of six months uh, to get parallactic measurements of, of distant objects. For us, though, all of our measurements of our sources must happen not just at the same time, you know, in, in a, a coarse sense. We, we get this down to you know, nanoseconds we, in order to produce our correlations of electric field values at very distant telescopes. And so uh, that's why a space expansion is really our only option for ever getting a baseline 
longer than the Earth's diameter. Oh, that's so cool. Okay, thanks, Daniel. Look, we'll just have a quick look now at your 2023 Harvard PhD thesis, Interferometric Measurement of the Magnetization and Spin of Supermassive Black Holes. So first up, a couple of very general questions for our listeners. How fast do black holes spin? And do we have spin data on many black holes? And I have a chicken and egg question. What comes first? the galaxy formation or the black hole at its center? Uh, These are three very tricky questions, and their answers are essentially big open problems and areas of active study that are decades old. And so I will do my best to uh, give the fun version of these questions. So first, the question of how fast do black holes spin? The answer is we have a sense of uh, some bounds on how fast black holes can spin. Of course, on one end, they could be non-spinning. And we expect black holes to have all kinds of different spins. Uh, Not all black holes are are alike. But if you imagine just taking a bunch of non-rotating material and just compressing it into a very tiny volume, you would end up with a non-spinning black hole. But if that material were initially rotating, like a star, for example, virtually everything in in space is rotating to some degree, if that collapses into a black hole, that black hole itself still carries that angular momentum. It's just encoded in a way that's much less intuitive because the material, it's compressed to a singularity, to the best of our our knowledge of these objects. And so thinking of an object with where where the mass has nearly no spatial extent uh, rotating, it's quite unintuitive. And yet nonetheless, There are very precise statements that can be made about the behavior of material near spinning black holes in something called the Kerr metric. And more to the point, there is an upper bound, there is a speed limit for black hole spin, which corresponds directly to its mass. And so uh, there are limits on how rapidly it would be spinning, beyond which it's a naked singularity. And we believe, to the best of our knowledge, there are no naked singularities in nature. And so in order for this strange object, this this sort of exotic object to be uh, concealed from us by an event horizon, this defining property of a black hole, it can only spin so fast. And and that that speed, that that rotation rate, is coincidentally very close to the measured spins that we see in x-rays. So to to your question of, of, do we have spin data on many black holes? The answer is, virtually no spin data on black holes like uh, the ones that the EHD takes pictures of. These are relatively quiet, low-luminosity active galactic nuclei, uh, which are relatively dim in, in X-rays. Uh, and we we have a, it's very tricky to measure their spins in a convincing way. Whereas for other types of black holes, those that are in, in general, uh, colder accretion disks that are, are more compressed and brighter in in uh, x-rays or in in some cases in stellar mass black holes we have a more convincing scheme for measuring spins in with x-ray techniques and in those cases we see black holes that are spinning almost as fast as they possibly could which suggests that they resulted from an object that was spinning fairly rapidly that then collapses into a black hole yep 
we expect that there could be very different distributions of these spins throughout the universe, depending on the mechanisms of black hole evolution that dominate. And they might not be the same everywhere we look. And there are good reasons to expect different scenarios uh, to, to play out. You might imagine that if I have two black holes that are each, say, you know, rapidly spinning, but their angular momenta are not aligned, if they happen to pass by each other and and collapse or and in spiral into each other, that resulting angular momentum is going to involve some cancellation of those original two angular momenta, and you might end up with a black hole that is much more massive but rotating much less quickly. And so there is a, a great deal of experimental interest in measuring the distribution of spins. It's something that is, is hopefully going to be illuminated partially by, by my work and, and, of course, work for many other uh, amazing scholars. And we hope to learn more about this soon for the, shall we say, quiet sort of plenty of sources more like what the EHT studies. And as for the chicken and egg question, this is another big open problem and one that I'm, I'm really not an expert on. But evidently, and this relates to something that we're learning from JWST results, galaxies are forming and turning on and looking more like modern galaxies much earlier than we expect. The farther back in the universe we look, the more surprisingly active it seems. And so it is, uh, it's possible that the galaxy formation and that sort of black hole, sort of supermassive black hole coalescence that we expect to happen eventually are all happening earlier than we anticipated and more closely to each other than we thought. My understanding is that previously favored models from say 10 or 20 years ago generally have a scheme of, of fairly early galaxy formation and then a supermassive black hole turning on and becoming actively accreting much, much later. Uh, but this is really being shaken up right now. It's an exciting time to be studying this. Fantastic. And it's so cool to have the JWST out there pulling in new data for you. It really is. I, I don't work at all on JWST data, but I have very close uh, friends and colleagues with many who do. And it, I, I just eagerly uh, await new, uh, beautiful JWST images. They're, they're, they're eye candy, and they're also just incredibly rich with, with uh, scientific information. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay, you've set the scene. Let's travel back in time. I'm sure many of our listeners will remember the much-anticipated six simultaneous press conferences that we watched. They were watched by huge numbers of people all over the world on the 10th of April 2019, and we all watched in amazement as that first image of a black hole was put up on a big screen. And it was a historic moment that will stand out in the history of astronomy. Were you there? What was your initial reaction? You'd probably seen the image before the rest of us. Yeah, so I I, I remember the thought that this would, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be a part of sharing something this special and unique with the world at a you know NSF press conference in DC. And at the time, yeah, I just started grad school. I had assumed that, you know, well, surely it's all downhill from here. Uh, and it turned out that particular event of sharing the first picture of a supermassive black hole at an NSF press conference in DC was a twice in a lifetime opportunity uh, when I returned two years later for the SAJ Star press conference. But nonetheless, it was still incredibly special. And mostly just seeing 
how many people on the internet and in, in my you know social life and private life, how many people actually cared and, and thought this was cool. I, I a part of me was worried that uh, no one would really care about it or or, or see anything special in it. But I, I was a fool to think that because black holes are cool. I have the luxury of working on one of the most immediately intuitively cool things in nature and so it was a magical time to just be on the streets and hearing people talking about this it was it was an incredible experience and i, I was very lucky to be a part of it oh indeed and i think it's going to give you a, a lifetime or a, a full career of research ahead of you now let's look at that actual stunning image of the supermassive black hole, that original image. We now have a much sharper image thanks to that Primo algorithm. But can you describe your original image and what can we see in it? What's there? What are we looking at? Yeah, so so in the sort of original 2019 image produced by the Event Horizon Telescope, you can think of this as the most conservative possible analysis of uh, a, a number of Fourier coefficients that we measured. So, so you, uh, again, going back to the the piano analogy, hearing a, a smattering of of keys on on a piano played in a particular order. This is our best guess that makes the the fewest assumptions we can about what this song sounded like, or or, or what this image looked like while only trying to assume things like, well, light has to have a positive value on the sky. There's no you know, negative images in, in space and making minimal assumptions about smoothness and spatial scales, that sort of thing. And even from that very blurry sort of rough image where we're really trying to be delicate about what we say and, and assuming as little as we can, we still learn a lot of exciting things. We see this brightness depression in the center that's very suggestive of a black hole capturing light on its way from, from its accretion flow to us. And we see an asymmetry in the brightness, which is telling us about the dynamics of the material. Uh, if you've ever heard a, a police car drive by, you've heard Doppler effects, how uh, sounds that are emitted by an object moving towards you are both higher pitched and louder than one uh, that is receding. That affects light as well. And so we expect an asymmetry in the brightness to tell us about the direction of motion and speed of the material rotating around the object. And later when we, we gained polarization information, that told us a lot about the magnetic fields in the flow, which has been both a, a huge focus of my own work and just been rich with uh, lessons to learn about accretion uh, in the years since. Uh, the Primo algorithm is an example of what you can do once you sort of believe that you're looking at a black hole. I consider the Primo algorithm to be one in a, a broad family of approaches to, to the problem of imaging or uh, model fitting black holes, where you say, okay, rather than trying to be maximally conservative, what if we assume our image corresponds to some set of simulations? Then you can ask the question, if we interpolate across our simulation space, what is our best fitting image that fits the data that we measured? And so the Primo image uh, is sharper than the EHT image because the EHT image is enforced to correspond to a particular resolution that is, is a the most conservative, fluffy imagining of our, our array and makes basically no assumptions about the physics, whereas Primo is built on a library of simulations. And, and there are actually a couple other algorithms that do, do similar things, and semi-analytic models are, are sort of making comparable uh, assumptions. 
But I, I think it's a, a very natural way to attack the problem of saying, well, we have pretty darn good simulations. What if we just connect dots between simulations in a, a very clever way, in, in the case of Primo, using something called principal component analysis, to see what's the best fit to our data we can build out of pieces from a, a library of simulations, and that's what you get from the Primo image. It's just a different kind of approach uh, than what we uh, did in 2019. Wow. And uh, yeah, your analogy, your music analogy there, it's a real symphony with it that we're looking at there. That's so cool. Now, there were more than two and a half thousand scientists like yourself working on that amazing achievement. Do you want to tell us a bit about that image generation or a bit more about that image generation? And what about the haystack? Did you get to work in the haystack? What is it? And what was your role, Daniel? Yeah, so so the haystack correlator is the place where, if you imagine every pair of our telescopes forming a single you know, piano key or however you want to think about it, the haystack correlator is one of two places in the EHT where that sausage gets made, where the actual correlations of electric field values are, are, are done. I'm downstream of that. I get the much easier task, and much more fun, to my mind at least, though I'm sure there's, it takes all kinds, of looking at that correlated data, which is now really millions of times smaller data volume, uh, and trying to understand it in the context of astrophysics. And, or in the case of, of the work on the 2017 data in imaging. And so, though I, I, I love Haystack Observatory, I was working one layer out where this data was was finished or finished products from Haystack, which were sent around the world to imaging teams who worked on it and produced the first images that really convinced us that we knew what we were looking at because everyone started getting the same result. And ultimately, my role in this project was, I'm actually notoriously bad at, at carrying out sort of expert user imaging where you're hand-tuning parameters to try and produce sensible images. So my job was to, in a programmatic, systematic way, for each imaging approach that we use, different algorithms, different uh, implementations of these algorithms, try to explore the full space of possible uh, images that could possibly explain our data while still making no physical assumptions, just different assumptions about things like so, or you know approximate uh, angular size of, of where all of this light should live on the sky, things like how smooth the image should be, how sharp, how sparse. These are things which in the world of computer vision, uh, there are uh, some standards for how to, to, to do this, but because our data are so strange and so sparse, we were working in a sense very crudely. And so my job was to break our imaging algorithms in a robust, systematic way to see what actually works. And so these parameter surveys, which form a, a central chunk of, in this case, paper four of the EHT series, were were my, uh, uh, you know, a huge, huge part of, of uh, what I was doing uh, for all of 2018. And uh, it helped convince us that our algorithms actually work and that we can believe our results because often the results we get of seeing a bright ring of light that's asymmetric, it has a brightness depression, it's a particular size, these are very insensitive to our assumptions. And I promise you, I tried as best as I could to break our, our imaging algorithms. And one answer is always very clear. We see something that looks a lot 
like a black hole. Fantastic. That is awesome, Daniel. Thank you. Now, since then, the EHT has moved its focus to SAG A star, Sagittarius A star, the supermassive black hole at the heart of our Milky Way galaxy in the direction of Sagittarius. Now, that's only 25,000 light years away. It's just next door. And Messier 87 star is 50 million odd light years away. And now we have two amazingly beautiful images of two black holes of Sag A star and Messier or M87 star. Why did you choose the more distant target for your first EHT project? Uh, yeah, that choice was not made lightly. And if you look back at uh, the older uh, material surrounding the EHT before we had results out, uh, you can tell that people were more excited to look at the galactic center than uh, at uh, Messier 87. But there are cruel realities that make Messier 87 a much easier target for study. Sagittarius A star is about a thousand times smaller uh, than Messier 87, which means that it evolves significantly faster, about a thousand times faster. These timescales are largely set by the mass. And so when you have a source that's evolving that rapidly, your ability to make images of it is really hindered by the fact that if you look at the, uh, the source at the beginning of the night and you look again uh, later, you're not looking at the same object. And so you can't treat that data as corresponding to the same underlying image without being very, very careful. And now that care is taken in our more recent publications on Sagittarius A-star, but it took a lot of time to build those algorithms and to believe what they were what they were producing. And so really one way to think about it is that in 24 hours is about three dynamical times for Messier 87. So if for, for eight hours, which is roughly how long we observe, that's about one snapshot in the life of Messier 87. But that corresponding time scale for Sagittarius A star is only 30 minutes. It's like looking at an excited puppy as opposed to a you know big sleepy Labrador. It's just a very different kind of target. The other major complication is we're looking at Sagittarius A star in its own galactic disk. And so when we look towards the galactic center, we have to worry about the stuff that's between us and the center of our galaxy. And along that line of sight, there are uh, little puffs of plasma uh, which produce interstellar scattering effects, refractive uh, and diffractive scattering that blur and warp our image in a way that we need to learn how to mitigate and treat properly in our data analysis. Now, one quirk is that the resolution of our instrument is actually comparable to the uh, sort of diffractive blurring that scattering does. You can think of it as we're looking at the galactic center on the other side of a sort of frosted glass shower door. And yeah. so our resolution isn't really good enough to suffer. <laughs> if we had much better eyes, we could tell the difference. At our scale, it mostly just looks like a fuzzy, blurry ring, and it would look that way whether or not it was scattered. So thankfully, the scattering was much less of a problem than you might think, and the time variability was the real killer that made us need to be very, very careful. Excellent. Thanks. That all makes sense now. Thank you. Now, we know very well that science never sleeps. 
What have EHT scientists been working on since May last year when you released that stunning image of Sagittarius A star? And what do you think will be next for the EHT? Well, indeed, science never sleeps, and even the EHT is never working on just one thing. Uh, there have been a lot of exciting uh, publications from the EHT and its affiliates on other sources, other black holes where they aren't big or close enough for us to see their shadows, the shadow of the black hole at, at the very, very center. But we can see beautiful jet outflows and such. And, and these have been really the bread and butter of radio astronomy for decades. And so in, in a sense, we're biding by tradition in, in that sense. But what's immediately coming up next that I'm personally most excited about is similarly to how for Messier 87, we later published polarization information about uh, the source that was really astrophysically rich. That is coming for Sagittarius A star, and it's what I'm most involved in. And indeed, what my thesis was focused on is trying to understand what we learn from polarized images of these sources. And I think we'll have a bit more to say about Sagittarius A star very soon. Oh, very uh, good. Very exciting. Watch this space, okay? Watch this space, indeed. <laughs> or watch okay. space in general, yeah. <laughs> Very exciting, studying our own backyard and understanding our very own galaxy. I'm looking forward to that very much now. Let's bring our listeners right up to date. You were recently awarded your PhD, and it looks like you've secured a very exciting postdoc position. Can you tell us about that? We know we have a lot of early career astronomers listening to this podcast. Can you tell us about that transition that you made from PhD student to postdoc and where are you now and what are your current roles and responsibilities? Sure. So, yeah, as a, as a grad student, I was at Harvard University in astronomy. And so my time was, in a sense, or my time and space were, were split among you know various places around Harvard, but primarily the Center for Astrophysics and a bit at the Black Hole Initiative. And, you know, as you can put together from, from my you know, CV, I, I rather like uh, living and working in Cambridge and doing science here. And so I really wanted to stick around also because my, my partner lives here and it would be a, a we call it the two-body problem, of course, trying to make a, the otherwise very itinerant lifestyle of an academic work for a couple in it for the long haul. And so I really wanted to stay in town. I really wanted to keep working on the same kinds of problems. And I was able to get a postdoc at the Black Hole Initiative just down the street, sort of under a similar umbrella to my previous employment as a grad student, uh, but with some immense changes in roles and responsibilities, which I, I imagine will be familiar to many who have made, made the jump, in that there is a great uh, amount of independence that comes with being a postdoc, especially if you are on a fellowship where you aren't hired into a group as opposed to uh, just being hired to do your own thing for the duration. And so that independence leaves a lot of room for things I find very valuable, uh, making more room for advising and, and, and advising students and interns and ensuring the success of grad students who are working on similar projects to my own and, and being able to take on more risky projects where it's not clear that they'll pan out in the short timeline with clear answers like you need in, in a grad program. 
So at the moment, I'm really relishing this opportunity, working with similar people on similar problems, but with much more freedom to spend half of my time doing things that are crazy, but with, in my opinion, a high chance of yielding uh, some very exciting results. And plus, of course, you know, just advising students is an immense joy. And I, I have a, a wonderful student right now, Caitlin Chevelle at Columbia, soon on the grad school job market, who is absolutely fantastic. And so to any listeners who are considering hiring a grad student, keep an eye out for Caitlin Chevelle. Fantastic. Okay. Look, can you take us a little deeper into something you're working on? Could you tell us some details of a particular problem or part of your current research that is driving you crazy or is astonishingly exciting, or perhaps it's both? Absolutely. So there is, I mentioned this a bit earlier, and, and I will, I am, I'm going to indulge myself here because this really is the, the richest problem and most critical problem in my mind uh, that my group here at the Black Hole Initiative is tangling with at the moment, because it will be crucial to the fate of both the Next Generation Event Horizon Telescope and a possible space mission, the Event Horizon Explorer, which I'm also a, a collaborator on, which is how do you detect light which has fully orbited a black hole? It's a very special property of black holes that light can orbit them. You know, in, in astronomy, all the time, we look at matter orbiting other matter. We look at planets orbiting stars, stars uh, orbiting uh, you know, galaxies. Uh, it's very special that black holes permit light to orbit them. And there, it is possible to detect this in a feature in our images called the photon ring, which is about... 10 or 20 times finer uh, in, in angular size than uh, most of what we've, we've ever looked at or, or published or, or, or understood. It, it, one way to put this into perspective is the angular size of the Event Horizon Telescope image is about the size of a grapefruit on the moon. But wow. if you wanted to look, oh yeah, I know, it's, it's quite tiny. Uh, but if you wanted to look for the photon ring, you would be trying to look for the stub of the stem of that grapefruit on the moon. And even then, you're, you're, you're pushing it. <laughs> so, it would be incredibly exciting to be able to say with certainty that you have detected orbiting light around a black hole. It's both a confirmation of the holistic properties of black holes that we expect, sort of regardless of, of detailed nature of, of, of the theories underlying them, but it's also an opportunity to probe the more precise predictions of general relativity for the environment around a black hole. And so a big problem I'm working on right now is given data from something like the Event Horizon Explorer, where you put a single telescope in space to get really long baselines, how do you convince yourself and convince others that the light you're seeing, the really fine structure, the really you know highest octave on your piano that where you only have one key, how do you convince yourself that that light is coming from the photon ring and isn't just some tiny wisp of plasma that happens to be blowing by when you looked. And I'm fairly convinced that we have a scheme for doing this that relates to symmetries of, of the problem. And, and one way to think about it is when we look at our uh, images in polarization, they have a particular spiraling pattern. But if you were to look at light, which is emitted from that very same accretion flow, but which first orbits behind the black hole before it reaches us, 
that motion reverses this handedness. And so there's a, a cute signature you can look for in polarization that lets you tease these things apart. And now uh, at the moment, and this is what I'm working on with, with my uh, wonderful student, Caitlin, is trying to see how good of an instrument and how, how sensitive, how long of a baseline, how often do you need to observe? What are the parameters of a mission that could detect this signature, that could really convince you that the photon ring is hiding there inside our images, just barely invisible at our current resolution? And could you do it from the ground with the NGHT? Do you need to go to space? These are the kinds of questions we'll answer, and it could have deep ramifications for the way we spend money over the next five to 10 years. So stay tuned. That is amazing. You're turning this huge telescope into a, a microscope and looking at a fine detail. That is awesome. Okay, um, look, let's just look at a more general area now. The current worldwide COVID-19 crisis is winding down a bit now. How did it impact on your research and your mentoring and your outreach? You mentioned your mentoring earlier. We'll talk about outreach in a couple of minutes. But first, the impacts of COVID don't seem quite so severe now, but you organised a NGEHT, that's Next Generation EHT remote conference, right in the middle of COVID. What, Daniel, are your personal and professional reflections of COVID? So... This is a wonderful question, and I'm very glad you asked it. I was uh, just finishing my second year of grad school when COVID hit, and we were in the middle of, of spring semester. I was taking classes, and uh, everything, you know, of course, ground to a halt. And I remember I was just filled with the sensation that none of my classes, none of my work mattered in the context of this wide-scale human suffering. I was constantly anxious about my family. You know, I, I, I have very mild asthma, but I have family members who have very severe asthma. And so they were, uh, of course, very worried about potentially getting COVID back when it uh, was a strain that affected the lungs more directly. And I was just consumed with anxiety and my research ground to a complete halt for at least a year and probably more, if I'm being honest. And I... I think I perhaps had reacted more strongly than it was warranted or than others did. But I, I saw this in many others besides myself, where you know, we, we have this permanent luxury in our lives that we get to study objects that will be here long after we're gone, you know, floating in space. We get to ponder the infinite and we're somehow paid to do it, usually by the American taxpayer. My goodness, uh, how did we get this arrangement? You know, it, it, and just reckoning more directly than we usually do, though perhaps as directly as we always ought to, with the just scale of immiseration during COVID, I think put a lot of my work into a, a stark contrast where I really had to, to stop and think about you know, what I valued, what I cared about, how I spend my time. And I think for a lot of us uh, in, in science, it has opened our eyes to ways we can be of hopefully greater service to each other and to the world. But it was, it was uh, to say it was disruptive is an understatement. It, it was a, a watershed moment. Now, professionally, there was a turning point where, especially after vaccination, we felt like we had the tools to maybe safely 
uh, collaborate in person, which really I, I realized was crucial to the joy of doing science. It's a it's a, a, a testament to human flourishing that we're able to do this joyous activity of of scientific research. But a lot of that is doing it together. And especially for me, you know, I, if I were to just do all of this alone, I, there would be no point in it. I really do love uh, working with other people. And so uh, a lot of, uh, you know, conference organization in, in the middle of COVID was trying to replicate that as a sort of cruel synthetic version of, you know, on, on sort of, I'm trying to remember the software name. I won't say it so you don't get into trouble. But it, it is difficult to 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 build a facsimile of a of a conference that feels at all as as rewarding as, as seeing old friends and old colleagues. And it's really made me appreciate what we have in in the day to day. And I really hope people don't forget how rough it was, and I don't think they will because we have something very precious. We're very, very lucky to be doing what we do. And we stress about it a lot in academia. My goodness, do people like to be stressed, but we are so unbelievably lucky. Uh, and, and that to me is the lesson more than anything else. Indeed, that is very powerful. Okay, thanks, Daniel. Now, you mentioned some supervising you're doing and when I was uh, researching your work, I see you've done outreach work, you've done presentations, videos, organising conferences and colloquia for your colleagues and you're doing mentoring. Is this something specifically you seek out? And what's next for you in outreach, Daniel? Uh, yeah, so as, as you can tell from uh, how I've taken this interview long, I, I love to talk. <laughs> and so I, uh, I'm always happy to talk to people about my work or really anything, frankly. But yeah, I think really over the last year, my approach to my work has changed uh, somewhat significantly from seeing it as my work plus outreach to, to a more holistic view of uh, the purpose of doing science and and who it's for. Uh, I, this was also brought home in the aftermath of our first results. When you see this, the non-scientific public engaging with your work, it reminds you of, of how this whole you know, system came to be. We are not doing research so that we, uh, academics, understand black holes better. We're doing it so that humanity as a whole understands it. And it's, it is part of our job. It is not extra that we teach the world, what we learn, that's the whole point. Yep. Now, a, a sort of corollary to that is there are aspects to science that fall outside the classroom that are nonetheless critical. And, and I've recently been involved in the responsible citing uh, subgroup of the History, Philosophy, and Culture Working Group of the Next Generation Event Horizon Telescope. You know, say that 10 times fast. But the job of, of the responsible citing group is to consider as we want to put more telescopes in our array to do all of this transformative black hole science, are we doing more harm than good? There have been cases in astronomy where the placement of a telescope has been incredibly economically, environmentally, socially, spiritually disruptive to yep. local populations. And we're trying to establish best practices for considering, not just carrying out, but even considering whether a telescope ought to be before it is being constructed and while it's being constructed doing it right and and that has become a huge part of my day-to-day -day, uh, work especially as i'm entering into this new black hole initiative fellowship this is a very interdisciplinary 
institute and it's it's wonderful to have the historical and anthropological sides of science really be embraced by my home institute and so that's that's the big next step yeah fantastic and it's great to see what we're understanding the cultural context of science on local populations as well okay is there something else we should watch out for in the near future? You hinted at something a bit earlier. What are you keeping your eye on, Daniel? Well, I, I will say the thing I am most excited about is my work with the Event Horizon Explorer. because, And this isn't just because it will lean heavily on work I, can, I, I uh, conducted in my thesis, but that's certainly related. But the Event Horizon Explorer is a prospective space mission, which aims to do two very exciting things. The first is it's going to try and study the orbits of light around black holes in exquisite detail. So it is the, the closest we will ever get to the boundary of our actual universe in testing the laws of physics, or at least the closest we will get in the near future. Yep. Because we know our understanding of reality breaks down at the event horizon, and the event horizon explorer is really taking us there observationally. And so it's an honor to be a part of it, and I really hope people look out for for this up and coming mission and and i hope it's a success the other sort of big exciting thing it's doing is trying to understand the local history of structure formation in the universe uh, in the sense of uh, measuring the masses and spins of hundreds of local black holes like the ones that we see in sagittarius a star and, and messier 87 it really can't be overstated the impact that something like a census of our uh, supermassive neighbors would tell us. It would transform our understanding of how the kinds of galaxies that we live in are cousins, cousins to the Milky Way, how they came to be. Their, their cosmic history will be laid bare in a way that it never has been before. And so being part of that project is uh, an incredible honor, and I, I hope that it excites people, uh, because for a big space mission like this, it's not enough to be part of it and be excited. You need the whole community behind you, and I, I hope I can, well, just through sheer secondhand excitement alone, convince people to, to give it a chance, because my goodness, uh, it is, it's got a wonderful team, and I think the science is going to be really, really exciting. I can sense that excitement in your voice, Daniel. You got in on the ground floor and now you're going into orbit. That is awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Daniel Palumbo. On behalf of our listeners and especially from me, it's been fabulous speaking with you. My head has spun several times, perhaps not as fast as some black holes, and it's been a great joy to hear the excitement in your voice it just resonates all, all the way through everything you've been speaking about. And thank you especially for your time in what I suspect is a very punishing schedule. And good luck with the new Explorer project and congratulations on your PhD and your ongoing fellowships and everything that happens in your career. So awesome. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you so much, Brendan. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for inviting me on. Bye-bye. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored. But we always recommend that you check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's 
Astro Blogger website to find out what's up in the night sky. And in two weeks' time, at the start of the month, we'll be bringing you Ian's October Sky Guide. Radio 1.